0: Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to consider these words, words that you have caused to be written exactly how you wanted them, so they might be your words, words that you've preserved down through time, words that we might consider now, and we ask please that you would give us open minds, discerning minds, so that we might be guided into the truth and that the truth might set us free. We pray this in your Son's name, Amen. This is our fourth week in our series in John and I don't know if you've worked it out yet but we haven't actually come to any words on the lips of Jesus. This author who writes the biography named John, he's been building, he's been keeping us waiting and this morning we come to Jesus' very first words which go like this, what do you want? Did you catch that? What do you you want? They don't seem like very profound words for the man who has changed the world like no other. And in one sense, they're not. In one sense, they are just historical words, words that Jesus once spoke to a couple of guys who were awkwardly close behind him. What do you want? But here's the thing. The author, John, he hasn't just put this biography together the night before it was due. Oh, boom here's the life of Jesus he has spent decades reflecting on this man Jesus and has crafted his account and there's evidence of that all the way through it. when you pay attention he's going to take us through seven signs that Jesus does powerful miracles he's going to give us seven I am statements that Jesus makes There's evidence here that he's taking us through the first seven days of Jesus' ministry. This is a carefully crafted account. And so the placement of Jesus' first words, they're not just random, they're intentional. Yes, part of a historical account, we'll come to that. But John uses history to serve a deeper message. One that leaps off the page and actually addresses us, draws us into it. So that Jesus begins by saying to you this morning, what do you want? What do you want? Imagine that. You're up at Erin Affair and a friend of yours says, there is the most significant man in the universe, the hope for all the world, his name's Jesus. You walk up to him, he turns around to you and goes, what do you want? What are you looking for? What would you say? Answers to life's big questions? Maybe healing in my body, in my mind, in my friendships? A job? Some inspiration to get me through another week? What would you say to him? Well, let's tweak the question because here we are at church. Why are you at church? If Jesus rocked up to his church and said, What are you doing here? What would you say? Oh, It's just what I've always done. Uh, Get some community. Maybe for you it's because someone dragged me along and I finally said, all right, I'll come and check this thing out. And if that's you, love that you are here. Here's the thing. Jesus addresses all of us and says, what do you want? He has something amazing to offer us. But what is that? What is it that he has come to offer the person that he says, what do you want? Well, we're gonna see three big things that Jesus comes to offer as we work through these encounters with Jesus. We're now into the narrative, we're on the ground, and we're gonna see how these engagements draw out three big things that Jesus has to offer for the person who would follow him. Number one, answers, answers. If you've got your Bible there, make sure you're looking at it. If you don't have one, listen in, grab one from us afterwards, Don't worry about what I say, worry about what the Bible is saying, so that we can look at it together is super important. Verse 35, the next day John was there, again with his two disciples, when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Now verse 40 will tell us that one of these disciples is named Andrew. The second one is unnamed, it's quite possible that it's John, the author, writing this. Verse 38, turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Now, his thing to understand about their response, John the Baptist has been proclaiming a Messiah is coming. His job has been to prepare the way for the Messiah. And so when John the Baptist has disciples around him, he's done nothing but prepare them for the Messiah. And so when he says, Look, there he is, they go after him. And they go, Where are you staying? That's not because they're just interested about his accommodation. You know, what Airbnb have you got, Jesus? Has it got a spa? Is it comfortable? No, no, no. When they respond to Jesus' question, What do you want? with their own question, Where are you staying? they're saying, Oh, We have so much that we want to ask of you. We seek answers to questions that can't be dealt with in 30 seconds on the street corner. Can we come? Can we have time with you? Notice their intent. They are seriously seeking something from Jesus. And for that person, Jesus is happy to oblige. Verse 39, come and see. replied so they went and saw where he was staying and they spent the day with him it was about four in the afternoon suggesting actually that they spend the night with him maybe stay overnight with him come and see says Jesus to anyone who would come with questions seriously with intent Who aren't just after the 30 second soundbite that solves it all so I can go and live my life, but who would come with patience, with time. But what questions are they coming to Jesus with? Well, Andrew's move, presumably the next day, makes it clear that they're questions about Jesus' identity, who he is, what he's come to do. Look at verse 41. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah. That is the Christ. So, Andrew is sure that he has found answers to his question on the Messiah, founded in Jesus. Now, a couple of things to notice about the Messiah. First thing, notice that the Messiah is the same as the Christ. John gives us the Jewish term and then the Greek term. He does it three times just in this text and he'll do it as he goes. So, Wherever you read the word Jesus Christ in your Bible, you could swap out Christ for Messiah. Jesus, Messiah. Which tells you that this isn't Jesus' surname, as if he's the child of Mary and Joseph Christ. This is a title Messiah, Christ. All right, but what's that mean? Well, just very briefly, the concept comes from the Old Testament. Now, if you do a word search of the Old Testament for Messiah, you won't find it. Instead, what you need to search for is anointed. This is where the concept comes from. In the Old Testament, particular people were anointed, quite literally with oil, for a specific purpose. So, the kings of Israel were literally anointed with oil to be set apart to rule on behalf of God. Priests were anointed to intercede on behalf of God. Prophets are even spoken about as being anointed to speak on behalf of God. And so in the Old Testament, anointed one is a special term that refers to God setting apart someone for significant special work. So there's actually a lot of anointed ones in the Old Testament. And it's out of this term that Messiah comes about. But not just any old anointed one. We have promises of God in the Old Testament that he will send the anointed one, the Messiah, who will come as God's king, as God's prophet, as God's priest. And so by the time we get to the first century, the day of Jesus, the day that John's telling us about, there's this heightened anticipation for the Messiah among the Jews. Because it's been 400 years since a prophet has spoken. There's been silence in Israel. Uh, They don't have the land to themselves. The Romans are ruling on top of them. And so they're wondering, has God rejected us? But there's also hope in the air. No, no, no. God promised his anointed one, his Messiah. And they're waiting and looking for him. Andrew spends some time asking his questions of this Jesus and comes away convinced i found the Messiah, God's promised one, the hope for the world. Here's the first thing we see Jesus offering, answers. Andrew had been looking for answers to the biggest questions of his time and he had found them in the man who had said, come and see. He'd taken him up on that invitation, he'd given him the time. Now the questions of our day, the big questions may not be worded like Andrew's. I want to put it to you, though, that when you dig down to the bottom underneath, they're pretty much the same. Who is God? Where is God? Which God? How would I know this God? What is this God doing in the world? Questions about my life purpose. Is there more to my life than just having a bunch of good times, maybe meeting the right person, settling down, having some kids, doing the renos, enjoying some travel, and then... Being six foot under? Is is there purpose to my life? Well, for those who would seek answers to these things, Jesus says, Come and see. How? Well, by coming to where he is in the Bible, to where God has brought him to us in these records. How? With patience not give me the 30 seconds and it's solved. Those who would seriously seek after Jesus, Jesus promises answers. It may be the case that actually the questions you first bring to Jesus, you actually put those aside as you do that and you go, actually, there's other questions I need answers to, bigger ones. It's a great joy as we see many people doing this. I see this happen. How come, what about? They bring initial questions. But then with time, it's like, oh, sometimes if that doesn't matter, but actually... I've got other questions that matter more. Bring your questions to Jesus. That's the first thing that we see, that he brings answers for the people who would seek them. Here's the second thing. Because these answers that Jesus offers aren't intended to just tick some boxes in our minds, fill out some knowledge, they're intended to transform us deeply. They are life-changing. We see a, a brief snapshot of this in verse 42. Andrew, convinced that he's found the Messiah, goes and gets his brother Simon, we've found the Christ, brings him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John, you will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. This is a very compressed encounter With Jesus, Simon doesn't even say a word, but he's changed forever. Jesus renames him Cephas, the Jewish name, which translated in Greek, Peter. Both these names mean rock. And the, the thing about this is, Peter's a common name for us in our day, it wasn't at this time. And so when Jesus says, you'll be named Rock, he's giving him a new title, a new identity. But there's, there's something profound about this because he's going, you know what? I'm going to call you Rock Man. You're going, to, you're going to be rocky from here on. Now, a couple of things that are striking about that is, firstly, who does Jesus think he is? You, know, you walk up to someone and he says to you, you are Harry, from now on you will be Hercules Hmm? who do you think you are this takes on extra significance when you appreciate the Old Testament background because in the Old Testament it's God who renames people God says Abram no longer you will be known as Abraham Sarai you should be called Sarah Jacob I rename you Israel who does Jesus think he is Wow, he thinks he is God on earth. I rename you. Here's the second striking thing about Peter's new name, Rocky. He is anything but rock man, isn't he? You read these accounts in the Gospels and they are honest accounts of these first followers of Jesus. Peter is impetuous, he's impatient, he bumbles and stumbles and puts his foot in it all the time. He's this man of of two halves, like he's got great faith in Jesus. Look at me, I'm walking on water. Oh no, I'm drowning. Uh, he, He claims Jesus to be the Messiah and then turns around and tells him how we should do his job. He confesses unwavering allegiance to Jesus. I will die with you. And then runs scared from a little servant girl. Peter is anything but rock man there's a great comfort and challenge for us in this. How does does Peter become rock man? Time with Jesus. Because we actually do find that after time, Jesus' death, resurrection, ascension, he does become rock man. Amazingly rock man. Will die for being rock man. But it took a lot of time for him to actually become what Jesus made him when he first met him. There's comfort for us in this because as you, as I, as we come to Jesus, he gives you a new name, a new identity. He says, Jez, you shall be called son of God, child of God. Chapter 1, verse 12. You are Lauren, daughter of Wendy. You shall be called daughter of God, child of God. And that is who you are as you come to Jesus from the get-go. But gee, you'd wonder about that new identity sometimes, yeah, in our lives. As I fail to even remember my father who is unseen, as I dishonour him in my life, as I dishonour his other children that are my brothers and sisters, here's the comfort for us. As Jesus was patient with Peter, he's patient with you. As it took time for Peter to recognise the new person that he was. Jesus is patient with us, it takes time. Here's the challenge though, coming to Jesus must change your life. And over time, you you must see evidence of transformation as evidence that you really have come to follow him truly. There's the second thing Jesus offers, deep transformation, not behavioural modification, but a new you, a new centre of who you are. Here's the third and final thing that Jesus offers. Yes, we're up to third and final thing. You think, oh, gee, it's gone pretty quick. It's all right. Here's the long one, all right? Uh, this one comes from the longest account that we find here with Nathanael. Verse 43, The next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, Follow me. Verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So Philip, like Andrew, who has spent time with Jesus, has been convinced that he is who he claims to be, the Messiah, the hope of the universe. He uses the language of the one that the Old Testament had written about in the law and the prophets. Notice here, we'll come back to it, the pattern of when someone who has come and seen who Jesus is, they go and tell who Jesus is. And he goes and gets, not a family member this time, but a mate, Nathaniel. And look at Nathaniel's response, verse 46. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathaniel's one of those dudes who's not backward in coming forward. He's a straight shooter, tells it how he sees it. And he thinks he knows better than gullible Philip. All right, if Philip is going to go along with this, you know, latest thing to satisfy his needs, not Nathaniel. He's a hard thinker, a straight shooter. And he goes, as if the person who has all the answers for our time would come from Nazareth. This is a window into worldly thinking. Worldly thinking. See, imagine this, rewind to last year. I know we want to try and forget last year, but it's 2020, the pandemic has struck, the world has been brought to its knees by a virus. And imagine in the World Health Organisation, who their central office, some lowly office walker barges into the top dog and says, we have found the vaccine, we've got it. It's tried, it's tested, it's effective, it is going to rescue the world. And the top dog goes, fantastic. Which lab? Was it in New York? No, no, no. Oh, Paris? No, no, no. Oh, was it Berlin then? No, no, no. None of those labs. A lab in Australia. Australia. Actually, a lab in a place called Kangiangi on the Central Coast. Anyone here from Kangi-Angi? No, it's a safe bet, right? <laughs> Do you even know where Kangi-Angi is? Who doesn't? Yeah, some honest people. You know it's on the central coast, but you don't even know where it is. It's this tiny little pocket, you know, where you get onto the freeway to the Rimba there? Kind of just, there's Kangi-Angi. Census tells us about 300 people call Kangi-Angi home. Now, here's the thing, right? Nothing against kangi It's It's a beautiful place. But who cares? Who's heard of it? 300 people is actually about the same size that Nazareth was at the time of this writing. The point is, our world ranks the significance of people and places according to size and prestige. Nathaniel is sceptical that God would bring the most significant person in history out of the most insignificant place. But it's the way of human arrogance. Have you lost your keys? Are you a key loser? <laughs> I've never been a key loser. And I must admit, I've looked down my nose on people who lose their keys. I'm like, get it together. Just keep it in your pocket. Last few months, I've become a key loser. <laughs> oh, It's because I've changed the bunch and it's just messing me up. And so anyway... Where do you look for your lost keys? In all the places that you're sure they could be. Where do your lost keys usually turn up? In the place you were sure it couldn't be, right? And usually a place that my wife said, have you looked there? No, it couldn't be there. Here's the thing with human arrogance. Nathaniel seems to have decided what God would and wouldn't do. But God doesn't march to the drum of the world's way of thinking. God operates in an upside down, inside out kind of way. See, if only Nathaniel knew this, not only had the Messiah not come from the hustling, bustling hip city of Jerusalem, the insignificant town of Nazareth, he'd been born in a barn to a poor teenage girl not into a comfortable home with status and prestige. This actually gives us a pro- profound insight into the nature of Christianity. It's from Nazareth, not New York. It's from Yangi. It's not the impressive thing, the, the thing that our world would make it out to be. And therefore, it is for people who would humble themselves go to the place that they're sure answers can't be and with open and discerning minds actually embrace weakness as the greatest form of strength. Nathaniel is sceptical but he's given the best possible advice from his mate Philip who simply says, verse 46, come and see, come and see. Notice his strategy, he doesn't get out his book of apologetics, so he can argue all the... He doesn't get into a philosophical debate about the nature of truth and history. He just says, come and see. It'd be like this, Muggsy Bogues, got a photo of him here. He's the shortest man to have ever played basketball in the NBA, at just five foot three. <laughs> can you imagine a friend comes up to you and says... I have just watched the shortest dude, at just five foot three, run rings around Michael Jordan. You'd be like, get out. Yeah, right. What's the best thing that your friend can do? Come and have a look. Come and see. That's Philip's strategy, having come to see the Messiah of the universe. And to Nathaniel's credit, he is open-minded enough to give this Jesus of Nazareth a chance. And his life is never the same. It's transformed. Verse 47. When Jesus saw Nathaniel approaching, he said of him, "He truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathaniel asked. Notice he doesn't say, you don't know me. Who do you think you are, presuming that you do? Clearly, Jesus has hit the nail on the head in terms of the character of Nathanael. So he goes, how do you know me? Jesus has seen into this man and he is struck by. It. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi... You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Wow. What a flip. From sceptic to worshipper. Not only can Jesus see into Nathaniel's character, having never met him, he can see what Nathaniel gets up to, his business. Now, we don't know what Nathaniel's doing under the fig tree or what that symbolises but we know that it was a private enough experience that Jesus should have no idea about it. And so when faced with Jesus, who sees into his heart and into his movements, Nathanael is struck that he is before no mere man and declares him to be the Son of God. Now, I reckon Jesus' response suggests that Though Nathaniel has said something that's true, it actually may be a bit premature. You know verse 50, Jesus said, "You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. <laughs> you will see greater things than that." It's as if Jesus goes, "Nathaniel, you ain't seen nothing yet." baby, baby." <laughs> Like, I seriously think Jesus actually got a smile on his face as he says this to Nathaniel the disciple. You're impressed by that? (laughs) You are too easily impressed. Just you wait. And then verse 51, the last verse in the chapter, this climax of this account, Jesus adds, Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, if you're new to these things, wherever you see the Son of Man, Jesus is using that as a way of referring to himself. Jesus says, heaven will open, you'll see the angels of God ascending and descending on me. This is actually Jesus' big mic drop moment, boom. This is the big exclamation mark to this account. But, as usual, it kind of needs some unpacking to see the significance of that. And, as usual, as we're reading the New Testament, particularly John, the Old Testament is key to it. We read, do you remember Genesis 28? So we read that for us. In that, in the Old Testament, a long time before Jesus, is an account of Jacob. Jacob who gets renamed Israel and becomes the father of the nation Israel. We read of an account where Jacob goes to sleep, has a dream, and in this dream, a stairway to heaven appears. Yes, the Bible came up with it before Led Zeppelin. (laughs) Who can't hear a stairway to heaven just start picking it? (laughs) There's this stairway of heaven and angels are going up and down, heaven's open, God addresses him. This is something profound, significant, out of the ordinary. And he comes away from that dream awestruck. And he sets up a stone as a monument, a marker for the place where God showed up. He calls it Bethel, the meeting place of God. Now what is Jesus doing here as he drags us back to that part of the Bible and applies it to himself? Well, Nathanael, all the disciples to this point, don't understand what kind of Messiah Jesus has come as. They probably expect him to jump on a big, white, powerful horse and charge into Jerusalem to bring down Caesar, to restore Israel to the land, to put a king back on the throne and for Israel to be in its former glory. But it's as if Jesus says, that would be like putting a Band-Aid on the chest of someone who has heart failure. A military Messiah? He wouldn't win forgiveness for those whose hearts are darkened by sin. Throwing off Caesar, that's no use for those who have thrown off the rule of God in their lives and stand under his judgment. A prosperous Israel, that means nothing for those who live and suffer under the judgment of death. No, no, no. That is not the Messiah Jesus has come as. Jesus has come to punch a hole through the slab that divides heaven and earth, that divides a holy God from sinners, from me and you. Jesus says, forget the ladder of Jacob, I'm it. I'm the one who has come to to bring a a divide, to to bring a a, a bridge between the divide of heaven and earth. And in Jacob's dream, as he was in awe after the dream, Jesus says to his disciples and to us, his readers, just you wait. You are going to see heaven torn open. You are going to see God show up. You are going to see a way to God, to heaven. Now, when... Do these people see it? Well, we don't have to wait long. The very next chapter, which we'll come to next week, Jesus begins one of his seven signs, powerful miracles, to, we're told, display his glory. So just keep reading. You're going to start seeing this man who has come to open heaven to us. But the most awesome work that Nathaniel, that his disciples, that we witness? Well he hints at that in chapter 3 verse 13. Flick over there with me. We'll come to this in a few weeks time. Jesus is speaking and again he's using the Son of Man language to refer to himself. Chapter 3 verse 13 says, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Notice that he's talking about traffic between heaven and earth. No one has ever done that except me, Jesus. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. As Jesus uses that language, he refers to nails being driven through his hands and feet to a wooden cross as he is lifted up to be executed. So that, verse 15, everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. As the great Messiah, the only one who has honoured God, who has never thrown his rule off, goes to die a death in the place of sinners, of you and me. That God's judgment might be poured out on him. That by looking to him as a substitute, I might be spared. That by belief in him, I might have, what does he say? eternal life. Here's the third and biggest thing that Jesus comes to offer. Eternal life. Life, your life, my life, that has been reconnected to the God of life. To not just know stuff about him, but to know him and be known by him as his child. To have a new identity, child of God. Eternal life that starts now. Eternal life that works transformation in my life. An eternal life that endures the grave. I'm sorry. Brie and I are about to just jump in the car in a moment, head up to Port Macquarie and say goodbye to her father. Um, seems like that, that final day has come. A few weeks ago, he put his trust in Jesus. We're not playing games here. Betty has gone. Yvonne, the family are grieving. We're not playing games here. But Jesus comes that he might be lifted up so that anyone who believes in him Will not die. Do you want to be reconnected to the God of life? Do you want to live beyond the grave which is coming for you? Well, when Jesus says, What do you want? you say, Eternal life. Do you want to be transformed? From the inside out, Jesus says, come, let me make you a new man, a new woman. Do you want answers that connect you to truth about reality? Jesus says, come and see. And for some of you, that's exactly what you're here doing. We love that you are here to do it. Can I urge you to be patient, to have intent, uh, to, to, to come to Jesus, give him time to show you who he truly is. And to the rest of us, don't miss the pattern that's on show here. Those who have come and seen who Jesus is, they go and tell loved ones, friends, come and see we share about the things we care about just rock up to work on a monday morning if you still do that in an office place you'll hear about the things that people really care about as they share about them. how are you going sharing with loved ones with neighbors the things that you care most about notice the pattern i've uh, shared this with you before, I think I always will, my most favourite way of describing this process of telling others about Jesus, uh, some man has said it's like one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Which is beautiful. There is nothing in us that's impressive, that's powerful, except the message of the Messiah. The one who has come to feed his world now and into eternity come and see who are you praying for who this week can you extend the invitation to come and see Uh, how might you do that well we've still got a bunch of copies of Luke Uh, just the account of Luke in the foyer that we worked through last year just grab one of those give it to someone Bring someone to church so that we might look at the accounts of John, which point people to Jesus. Bring them to Easter. Come and see the one who answers your questions, the one who will change your life, the one who will bring eternal life. Praise God for him, yeah? Let me pray. Father, we we thank you again that we are here this morning. We have made very real decisions to be here, but acknowledge that you run your world, that you you stand behind anything good that comes in your world. And so we thank you that you have brought us to this question of Jesus, what do you want? Please, might it be those things that he's come to offer, and please, by faith in him, might we have them as he's promised to give them. For those who are seeking, might it be seriously and might you give the gift of eternal life. For those of us who enjoy it, might we appreciate just what we have in Jesus, cling to him, never leave him. We praise you for the hope that we have for all who would put their trust in Jesus both now and into eternity. We pray this in his name. Amen.